do the next right thing. That's what Adrian did. He said, okay, what, here's the decision. What do I do? Do I stay here and do the wrong thing for everybody based in, you know, my ego and my need to do this? Or do I do the next right thing, which is recognize what's happening and turn around and be good to everybody else? Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining. I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is the first episode of Afterglow. The podcast is is literally brought to you by us. We have no budget. We don't have any sponsors. For me, it's an emotional exploration, and I really enjoy sitting down with people on a one-on-one basis. And so you won't hear a high-end, edited, manicured production. You're really just going to hear a conversation between two folks who love being in the mountains and just trying to learn from one another. I think we all need heroes in life because it gives us, it allows us to dream and it gives us goals and it lets us pursue things that we might not otherwise were we not to be inspired by these heroes. We learn stories from the time we're children. It's what our parents tell us. The stories that our heroes tell, we can learn from. So we put on an event at Squaw Valley called the Alpenglow Sports Winter Film Series. And basically, it's a free show for the community, five times a winter, that's designed to motivate, educate, and inspire. We bring in amazing athletes like Lynn Hill, Tommy Caldwell, Jeremy Jones, and basically give the community a free show. But we also sell raffle tickets and raise money for a local nonprofit, making a difference in our community. And to date, over 12 years, we've raised over $130,000 for North Lake Tahoe nonprofits. And we say the purpose of the series is to motivate, educate, and inspire. But at the heart of the event is storytelling. So a big part of my inspiration behind the podcast was a two-year ongoing health issue that I've been experiencing. I have this crazy, semi-diagnosed, semi-treatable autoimmune disorder that's really changed my life and has turned me from a avid backcountry skier and ultra runner to someone who kind of had that identity taken from them forcibly. Um, And instead of focusing on the negative aspects of it, I felt like I could have my own personal epiphany through the struggles that really allowed me to refocus on what matters in life. And I'll always love backcountry skiing and trail running, but when I was so sick and so hurting, I really took a step back and tried to refocus on what mattered in life and, and, you know, to be honest, what and how I would be remembered for if I were to not be around anymore. And really what came to the forefront of my mind was the relationships in my life and the importance of those loved ones around me and really 
gave me a personal epiphany of of really, you know, refocusing on what mattered. And when you're sick and you can't get out and play in the mountains and and decompress and and be yourself, um, you really seek for some other kind of meaning. And and I feel like this podcast has given me some direction and and fulfillment in that regard. And and when I really took a step back and thought about what mattered in my life, I felt like harnessing the energy from the winter film series and splashing it out to a broader audience could be my service to other mountain communities that hopefully they could then benefit from as I had. And in the middle of the night, I had flipped on a podcast to try to fall asleep. And it was a TED radio hour talk that featured Dave Isay. And he has this wonderful quote, you know, along the lines of stories from people that we may or may not expect uh, build bridges of understanding and allow us to be more empathetic and inspired by those around us. And I really felt at that moment that it was that quote kind of encapsulated what we could do with the power of these speakers and to a broader audience. So the Winter Film Series shows are, for me, kind of the outdoor equivalent of a TED Talk. You know, these speakers are bearing their souls in front of a thousand people in a very scripted, rehearsed manner. And these nights are so powerful for our community. You can literally feel the energy in the room at Squaw. And we thought how awesome it would be to take a step back with these athletes the day after their performance and interview them on a one-on-one basis. You know, these amazing athletes are coming to Tahoe. What a great excuse to sit down with them and, and rap as fellow mountain people, but do so in a candid and welcoming and friendly environment that we could then pipe out to a broader audience for their own benefit. The Afterglow podcast initiative has been a 13-month process. Traditionally, we sit down with each speaker from our winter film series the day after their show. Last winter, as many of you know, in Tahoe was a massive year with over 700 inches of snow. And on the night of Corey and Adrian's show, we had a borderline roof collapse 15 minutes into the show, which was scary, but also framed our conversation the following morning. So you'll hear us reference aspects of that night. And, you know, at the time we're laughing when it was happening, we weren't laughing because it was quite scary. But after the fact, we're laughing about it during the interview. Adrian and I have been friends for over 10 years now, and we've done a lot of fun things in the mountains from backcountry skiing to trail running. And I consider him a close friend and someone that I look up to and am lucky enough to have in my life as a mentor and personal hero. I knew who Corey was, but I had never actually spent any time with him before he arrived in Tahoe a couple days before his show. But I knew when we met that there is a tremendous amount of depth to him. You can see it in his eyes. You can hear it in his voice. And he is obviously very famous for his National Geographic photography and alpine climbing pursuits. But he's intriguing to me on a human level because he's tremendously flawed and not afraid to talk about it. So here it is, the first Afterglow conversation with Adrian Ballinger 
and Corey Richards. We were like, I've known AB for 10 years and we've spent countless hours in the skin track talking about life and, and you know, everything. But um, I had never met you or even heard you talk until the day before the yeah. show. Yeah. But I'd only seen your, your, your work, right? And uh, I knew it was going to be special because the work is, it's beautiful. Uh, and you can tell there's so much depth there. Well, thanks. You know, like, I appreciate that. And, uh, and then, he, you know, speaking to you, I was really psyched that you came. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm psyched to be here. You know, I haven't seen AB since... Since the mountain. Well, I mean, we flew back and did a press junket in New York, and we haven't seen each other yeah. in almost... Yeah, like right. nine months. This so. is what brought us back together. And, yeah. and really, like, even though we knew we were going back to the mountain together in six, five weeks from now, <laughs> scary to actually so say that. Yeah. Like, we we haven't even really, like, gotten to get in deep about what we're doing, what's going to be different, how we're going to climb it, what our schedule is going to be. Because right. that's just kind of life has been running, and we know we're going back, and we know it's going to be good, and that's that. But yeah. to actually get to spend four days together thanks to this slideshow and thanks to Eddie Bauer, you know, for helping to bring, bring Corey out here and things like that. Like, uh, it, uh, it's been awesome. So, <laughs> and how did you guys actually meet? I mean, have you been friends for a long time or? Well, we met actually, we met in the Kumbu. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then the first time that we, uh, as we started to do the show last night, we, we glossed over it because we don't have a lot of time to talk in those situations because there's so much information to cover. But really, we met when I was there. I mean, we solidified our friendship uh, in 2012. We had met in 2010 and we're hanging <laughs> out. But it was like, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you're a fun person. And like, yeah, you're friendly and whatnot. And um, it's kind of like, oh, I know Corey's a badass. He's doing something really cool, like climbing with Inez Paper, who I yeah. have a crush on. So yeah. <laughs> he must be pretty cool, too. I mean, we've just been in the same circles for a while. Right. And then 2012 came, and you know, I had some serious issues dealing with the, the stress. I didn't really know that I was dealing with PTSD at that point. But, but I remember having a conversation with Adrian uh, as sort of the rope-fixing teams were being dispatched to go up onto the Lotsi face. And... and, and and I remember just going over to him, and this is before the earthquake, this is before the avalanche, and I was just like, dude, I am, uh, somebody's going to die in the ice fall. Like, a lot of people are going to die in the ice fall. And I, I don't want to say it was a premonition to 2014, but it was certainly um, obvious that as the, the landscape, the topography, the glaciology was changing because, you know, things are happening there. As the glacier deflates, and, you know, that's a bigger topic, climate change, but as that glacier is deflating, it's forcing people to go through much more dangerous terrain. And it was obvious that it was getting the, the, the path through the Kumbu Icefall was getting pushed closer and closer and closer to the west shoulder, and the closer mm-hmm. you get there, the more at risk you are. And I remember Adrian and I just having a really... Uh, heartfelt conversation about like yeah you know he agreed and and that was interesting because most of the guides there categorically disagree with pretty much everything i say Uh, (laughs) and i don't know if it's a clash of the egos which it could be because i have an enormous ego and and some i try to keep in check but adrian and i like we we agreed on that and um and you know and he had some really good points but i liked the the discourse there and that i think is where that sort of foundational respect for each other uh, really grew from. And yeah, that was the big year for me. Right. And there really was a lot of 2012 on Everest before uh, 
Corey left and before or and before, before we I got left. evacuated. Yeah, Corey got right. evacuated yeah. and and I got dragged off the mountain kicking and screaming basically <laughs> in these two different situations. All guided group decided the mountain was too dangerous and, and, and Corey had his own situation but the, there was a lot of like actually tie into both of that like the danger on the mountain that year was not okay. And I, you know, I yeah. imagine that was building up on you. The ice fall was completely fucked up. You guys were trying to climb the, the west shoulder or the west ridge, west yeah. ridge, which put you on terrain that if it had snow on it would be reasonable climbing terrain for any of us in this yeah. room. But that <clears throat> season, pure blue ice, yeah. it wasn't reasonable. Um, and then at the same time, the Lotse face was just a disaster. You know, I think... I think we got to this point in the show last night. You know, eight Sherpa had been hit by rockfall on the Lotse face by the time we were a month into the season. Um, like, helicopter rescues out after, like, broken jaws, broken collarbones, broken arms, you know, massive not okay because of how dry the mountain was that year. I had gone up with a team of Sherpa and Willie Benegas and looked for another way through the Lotse face. We couldn't find, in my opinion, a way that felt comfortable. Um, so the stress that was building that season was really unlike was, was other seasons. And I think what, one of the things you said about the other guides, it, it's not that guides don't see this, but I think all of us, we, we try to like fit, fit things into the pattern or the box that we needed to fit into to do our job. And it's just like an avalanche terrain, like not being willing to see the huge fucking red flags trying to hit you in the face, right. but, you know, um, it, it's really hard to actually see him. And and even that season, you know, I give a lot of credit to Russell Bryce, who I was working with, even though our decision-making process through all this stress and difficulty led to our business relationship becoming really difficult to manage. Um, he, he, he has a gut feeling that he doesn't need anyone to agree with him and he makes calls on it no matter who you are, what you are, or how you paid. And, you know, he made some really hard calls that season. Wow. A trip. Yeah, it yeah. was a trip. 2012 yeah. was a big, like, big year for me, yeah. going from, like, the 8,000-meter peaks just being so much damn fun. Like like I said last night, I was rolling. I was just having so much fun. I It just felt so easy to just, like, screeching, screeching halt of, like, people die here, which we all know, but, like, it's right in front of you. It's happening in your arms. And, uh, and, it, it, and, like, it's up to us to try to make good decisions or the right decisions, regardless of the money behind it or the sponsors or the passions or all these different things. Right. So fast forward what, yeah. four years, right? <laughs> yeah. You're different people four years on. What, what was it in your um, personal journeys that kind of drew you to this oxygenless attempt? Well, um, for me, you know, I mean, the, the statement, you're different people is really funny because, and very fitting because I think looking back, um, I, I've done more growing personally in the past two years, well, in the past six months of life <laughs> than I did in the previous two years. And I did more growing in those two years than I did in the previous four and I did more growing in, in, you know, in those four years. So really from the point I was about, um, everything was kind of good and great and a little, you know, it was rocky. Um, but up until I was about 28, 29, things were pretty okay, you know. And, and then Gash Room 2 happened and, 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 um, and that sent my career going, you know, skyrocketing uphill. 
uh, at a wonderful pace, and I wouldn't ever want to change that. But my my personal life really started to just unravel, and um, <clears throat> so after 2012, when I started really coming to terms with that. Um, you know, I, I left my marriage, I left my production company, I left my sponsor, um, and, you know, I, I burned down my life, right? And it took about two years after that happened, that was 2014, that all that sort of exploded, unraveled, um, late 2014. And, uh, and then I, I don't know, I was just laying on my couch one day. And, you know, Adrian and I had talked about this and it had sort of been in our minds and I don't know how it had marinated to this point, but I was laying on my couch one day and I just had all of a sudden things just became clear. It was one of the only true aha moments I've ever had because I find that aha moments really only happen in hindsight. They're not, a, it's never a moment, right? It's never like, oh shit, you know? It, it, it only appears that way when you're looking back, but there was a moment in this case where I was, you know, I was laying on my couch and I was very depressed to the point of not being able to really move and feeling sort of like I was completely fooling everybody in life. You know, I was, I was a complete farce as far as I was concerned. Everybody thought I was out killing it and taking photographs and like running around the world and, you know, being a National Geographic photographer and, uh, you know, and, and like being this incredible athlete. And meanwhile, I'm like, I feel like the most, uh, I feel like I'm lying to the world. Like that's not me at all. You know, I'm, you were I'm, doing those things. I was doing those things, but I wasn't, I wasn't experiencing them. Like something had shifted in my life and, and, you know, going back on it now, I mean, I was deeply engaged in, in, uh, in, in alcoholism and, and really like, you know, so I wasn't even present. So there's this huge Jekyll and Hyde thing going on with me. And I sat up and, um, and I was like, holy shit, you know, there's some changes I have to make. And, but I didn't even think of it that way. I was like, I need to go back to the place where this splintered. I have to go back to the mountains. I've grown too far away from it. And something is deeply shattered and missing in my life. And I knew that Everest represented something and it's not about climbing to the highest place that's not it. it it was just something that had been sitting with me for a long time even since childhood and because adrian and i had that relationship had that bond had that ongoing conversation uh the timing just felt serendipitous and fat and out of shape i kind of sat up and was <laughs> like shit i gotta i have to do this you know or at least i have to try right um and we probably didn't decide to go until something like November of 2015. And we, even then... We were going to go in April of 16, provided our sponsor, Eddie Bauer, came through, provided I joined the team. And yeah. I just remember having this phone call with, with Corey and, and Corey being completely honest and being like, which he wasn't, I'm sure, but he's like, I'm a fat sack of shit. <laughs> and I, I have four months and I can be ready. But are you okay with that? And I remember being like... Uh-huh. Uh, uh. I think it was less than that, dude. I think it was, you know, I think that was middle of January when but, I said that. Yeah, but uh, there were a couple of things I was clear about. Like, uh, you know, funnily, 
Corey and I had never done a major expedition together before this spring. So we were friends. We had seen each other on big mountains. We had seen each other at climbing festivals. He had done a lot more trips with people I really love and care about, especially Emily Harrington. You've done multiple trips with Emily. You've done trips with Hilary O'Neill. These people I really respect and that speak so highly of Corey in the mountains and what he puts out there. And it's all out there. And he takes care of his partners. And like it's not always easy or pretty. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it, it works. And, and I knew from Gashabram to the winter expedition um, and just sort of my feeling with Corey, like I, I just knew he knew how to suffer. And <laughs> my experience on Everest tells me that there's just a lot of suffering and you have to find that place in you that you could sort of laugh at it or be okay with it or kick and scream it, but you got to be able to get through it. And I just had no doubt that you had that. Well. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, I, and I mean, the same is very true for, for Adrian. And I, you know, I don't want this to turn into just sort of a backslapping, uh, fist bumping, high fiving thing. But I do think, you know, there's so many virtues of climbing partners that are mandatory for success. And for me, uh, you know, one of the, I mean, first and foremost is just experience, right. And, and going to, to the Himalaya with Adrian, um, there's a level of comfort. I, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, and I often make fun of myself. It's like, yeah, it's like, of course, I climb with people who are better than me all the time. That makes me look great, right? Because I can rely on them to fucking get me up shit, especially when it's a guide. Um, but like, the the truth is, I do like to climb with people who have a ton of experience. Um, and I have always lived by uh, sort of the the idea of if you, if you make yourself the weakest link in the chain, then you always know where the chain will break. And that way you can control the, the, the level of output, right? So I made myself the weakest link and that's, that's how I know, you know, where we're going to be okay and where we're not. Cause to be fair, I'm usually the one that says I'm scared or fuck this first, you know, and Adrian, because of his experience is one of those people where I'm like, he's much stronger in the mountains than I am. I know that. And I also trust him implicitly. So his, you know, we can balance those calls. And the other thing is he, he actually allows me to be the emo little shit that I, I that I am. <laughs> and that's like, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a unique human being, you know, like it's really rare. And somebody's like, all right, Corey's being fucking dark again. Like Practice whatever. Practice with Corey helped me to be a better boyfriend. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> As I've said before, it's like all of the drama and none of the benefits when you're on a climbing trip with me. Heterosexual life partners. These are dramatic exaggerations. We should also point out that with everything Corey's saying, he summited this season and I didn't. So there's a lot of strength there that, you know, maybe you don't give yourself credit for. But do you think, you know, obviously you guys are both very strong personalities, right? And you had your own share of trials and tribulations, right? Totally. Several years before the expedition right so yeah. do you think that kind of played into things in terms of your the effectiveness and the power of your partnership i do i mean i think so many things worked well about our partnership obviously like it just really clicked but um 
one of the things I do think it helped that we had this similar like need to go back to Everest in this form. So for Corey, it had to do with 2012 and, you know, this reconnection back to this mountain that had been important for him. For me, it had been, I had literally at that point, you know, this past season was my ninth year on the mountain. So I'd literally, literally spent two to two and a half months a year on the mountain for nine years. And the place is incredibly important to me. I mean, Brendan, we've talked so much about this. Like, Everest gets so much flack in the media from professional climbers, from people who will never climb anything. Across the board, there's so many things wrong with it. And it's true. There are a lot of things wrong with it. There are so many challenges. But for me, those nine years I've spent there have formed who I am as a person, as a leader, as a guide, um, as a friend, um, as a partner, and so I have these really deep feelings about the mountain, and I've seen what it's done to so many other people, good and bad, but ex- the things that happen there are powerful, and that's very generic, but intense experiences happen on the mountain, no matter who you are, a Sherpa, a guide, or a client, or a professional climber, and so I, like, it's just so important to me that Everest stands tall. Like, it stays sacred. Dude, it's pretty tall. <laughs> it's pretty tall. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it's the tallest. Um, it, that it stays sacred in my mind and in other people's minds. And 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015 started to... I started to lose that. The issues on the mountain, the politics, the 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 death and negativity that I experienced, Um, some of my poor decisions as a business owner, taking people who weren't ready to be on the mountain. Um, It it started to get sour for me. And and as that was happening, like it became clear I needed to go back to the mountain for myself and do it in the way I was absolutely the proudest. And that included going to the north side. It included having Sherpa support. Some people think like it's more pure to climb without Sherpa support. I don't think there's any such thing on the normal routes on Everest because there's so many Sherpa helping everyone, putting in fixed ropes, putting in the track. So I wanted to support a Sherpa team that I've been climbing with for 15 years. But I wanted to try without oxygen. Like Everest for me with oxygen, um, between my experience on the mountain 10 years, my genetic just luck of the draw, Everest with oxygen on a good day is relatively straightforward. I know I can do it. Like, you know, you can go and run a marathon. You just know you can do it. If you're healthy and it's a good day, you're going to do it. And I knew if I took away that, that support of oxygen, I had no idea if I could do it. And that's how I wanted to go back and feel this mountain and feel that like pride again. Um, of, of getting my ass kicked and that's exactly I got exactly what I came for like that's sort of the end of the slideshow that we never got to there's different conclusions and we talked so much about this but my experience on the mountain I turned around less than two hours from the top or two hours from the top um and it, which was heartbreaking after feeling so strong for an entire season and I can rationalize all these different reasons why it happened and um but at the end of the day looking back on it like I wanted to find that line where I couldn't take another step or I was going to get myself killed if I kept pushing. And, and I hope that line, you know, was just on the other side of the summit so I could go to the summit and come back down and be like, ooh, I almost tickled it, but I didn't quite, you know. But as it turned out, that line was below the summit. And, and 
I got there and I spent a bunch of time staying on that line with Corey on the radio and Monica, our expedition doctor on the radio and Paulden, one of my best chauffeur that I've known for a decade, all being like, Adrian, you got to stop. You got to stop. Adrian, it's not right. It's not right. It's not right. Um, I spent enough time there to be sure to know in my heart that I wasn't going to come down if I kept going up. And, and I turned around and I like, it, it's, been so powerful for me and for the last year since that moment Everest hasn't been this like shitty place that I'm gonna have to de- go and deal with politics and all these things that are really challenging it's been totally this like bright burning light of I'm gonna spend the next well it took a few months for me to get to this point there were a few months of like I don't know if I ever want to go back and now it's been this just burning light goal that I want to I want to play there again I think it was, we were in New York um, doing the press junket afterwards, and, uh, and bear in mind, the, the reason this blew up so big, I mean, we didn't really intend for it to, to blow up, we, we were doing this snap, Snapchat, <laughs> you know, we were doing it on social media, and, it, and that's actually what made this so public, um, you yeah. know, and it was, it was a very organic way of sharing the experience, and, and I think it works very well with Adrian's personality and my personality, but... I think it was in New York City, we were talking about this and every interview that was happening, you know, we were like, there are people, are, are you guys going to go back? And, and at first the answer was no. And then like halfway through the day, because the press junket was like two days long, halfway through the day, the answer was like, well, we're, you know, maybe. And then like, I think it was, we were on Charlie Rose <laughs> and Charlie's like, so you're going back? And this is like the end of the first day and Adrian's like, definitely. And it's just <laughs> like, wait, what happened? How did this happen so quickly? But I think also... You know, you, you mentioned uh, Adrian's similar sort of uh, experiences in life. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he's gone through some, he went through some things that were very similar to what I was going through. Yeah. Um, you know, he and forgive me, but uh, like, oh. you know, he had been he had been through a divorce and, he, you know, his business had sort of you know, gone through a hiccup and these things are universal. (laughs) Well, fundamental restructuring. Um, And the funny thing is we talk about business, but I mean, these things, they're like intensely personal relationships, whether they're with partners in business or with lovers and wives. And yeah, I mean, and when you blow up those relationships, it hurts. It hurts. It hurts a lot. And, and so I was just coming out of that. Adrian, you know, had been through that. He was, um, he had a little bit more time between him and those deeply personal, uh, wounds that, that, that need time to heal. And, the funny thing is, you know, we were talking about needing to reconnect with this place uh, for both of us. I mean, that's really what this trip was about, is reconnection. And um, I, I tend to think of Everest, you know, Adrian was saying, I've seen all the things that happen up there, both good and bad to people. And I think the reason this place is special, the reason it's important, at least to me, is because it is, um, everything there becomes relatable. And because it strips people down and, and I talk about this all the time in climbing. Sure. It's a, it's a privileged position to be in, to be able to go to Everest and climb. And I'm not ever going to try to deny that. And I'm not trying to make climbing more than, than what it really is. It is a selfish pursuit, but in climbing and in outdoor activity, whatever it is for any person, there are tremendous valuable lessons to be learned. And the way I tend to think of, of this mountain in particular, and the reason it's important to me is because 
and I was talking to AB about this the other night in his kitchen, I, I think of the world shaped like a sort of like more like a teardrop or, or a water droplet. And, and if you picture that, that highest point quite literally is the summit of Everest. And so for me, that's the place from which all everything flows, human experience included, good, bad, right, wrong. It's that single point that unites the entire planet. There is no place closer to space, to heaven, if you want to call it that, that you can actually go. And, and it's funny because I think a lot of people, myself included, go to that place or try to go to that place to, to satiate this idea that now they've over, you know, this is something that they've overcome. And in actuality, I think that that's the, the farthest place you can run from most of your problems. And, and that's what, that's what last year became for me. And, um, and I just think, I think Everest is relatable. I think the, the reason people are hungry for it constantly, and we always go back to that place is because it's relatable. It's like the highest cathedral, you know? Everybody looks up. Everybody wants to see that. And I think... It's actually really simple to understand. In, yeah. In theory. You know, I yeah. think part of our telling our story in the way we did in this really, you know, uh, dynamic way at all times of day, every day through Snapchat, like it gave people a real feeling of the nitty gritty. And maybe people didn't have an understanding of that. But in its essence, it's so clear to understand. Well, that makes it, it, it's just so relatable. It's just, and it goes back to sort of tribalism, right? We are our best selves when we are immersed in an experience in, with community. And so when you're on Everest, you are back at a much more basic level of, of human existence and, and adhering by our sort of evolved biological trajectories. You know, we are, we're tribal, I'm, I'm with Adrian and Monica and, and Zeb and Chad and, you know, and some, so clients, guides, whatever, w- there's a hierarchy, but we're tribal and we rely on each other and our days become very simple. We wake up, we know the job we have to do. We do that job. We support each other in it. We listen to each other. We take time for each other. Everything is simplified and because of that, we become happy and we also share much deeper experience because it is real up there. And that's tribalism. And that's how we evolved. And so climbing becomes this wonderful example for how we can live more completely by stripping shit out of our lives. And I, I, I think that's lost on a lot of people. But the more shit we take out and the more we focus on family and friends, and just like the, you know, I don't want to dork out on the film series, but I mean, you think about it, that's what it is. And that's why it's important. And that's why I love expedition climbing. That's why mm-hmm. I love going back to the mountains. Because it's a yeah. reminder of how simple it is. Self-instructional. That, yeah. Up until last <laughs> year, I spent at least eight months a year traveling internationally on expeditions with teams. Mostly guiding, some personal, living in a yellow tent. That's simple life. And uh, clearly, I want to spend more time at home. I want to be home with my, you, you know, with Emily, with family, with friends. I just love this place so much. And yet it is, it's, it's a hard transition to figure out how to spend more time in the chaos and how to manage that chaos myself instead of being in the big mountains where it's just, it's managed for you. Right. Um, and yeah, that, I, I thrive on that life in the big mountains. Yeah. And yet I also know I want something different. Yeah. Right. And it, it's, but it's like you want the same. I want the same thing, but You here. want the same thing <laughs> in a different, yeah, yeah, in a different setting. Well, no, I think and with then, a dog. 
just yeah. for the popular. <laughs> well, I think at a, at a fundamental level, right? I mean, yeah, you guys opened up that expedition to the world, but at a, at a fundamental visceral level, it's, it's, it's a story as old as time, right? Mm. Like it's the hero's journey. Yeah, totally. And, um, we're all humans. We all have character flaws, but we all have that potential to be, fill the roles that you did. Right. Which I think is, um, I think we lose sight of that in society because it's very simple. Right. And I think we lose sight of character flaws. People do things. They accomplish great things or quote unquote great things. And in that accomplishment, we tend to forget or, or discard the pieces of the story that are unflattering. And that isn't a complete or honest story at that point. It loses value and integrity because it's not the whole story. You're telling only the, you're, you know, you're putting your best face forward and you're leaving the shit behind. It's the only way to be truly honest is to tell all the shit. You know, I, I mean, I know that. <laughs> the whole picture. The, the, the whole picture. Yeah, warts and all. Yeah. And I think as we were talking about this last night. I think there, it's in today's day and age where, you know, Maybe you can argue there's, uh, in some components of life, a lack of accountability, right? But if you if you have the constitution to talk about those things, mm-hmm. and to say, yes, I am an accomplished individual, but it took all of these warts and all these problems along with the good shit to get to where I am. I think that's really powerful, right? And I think you guys do a really good job of saying that, you know, on a daily basis. And you might not even realize the power of that was someone's going to look at you fucking cross-eyed and be like yo he just said he was an alcoholic or yeah he's cheating on his wife or whatever you know yeah, i mean yeah. and i think um i think that again you know makes makes you a very endear your story very endearing your personality is very endearing well nobody so i've built i mean I, I, I discovering what honesty is has been sort of a journey for me because i've i've always tried to be honest but then i look back and i go man i wasn't being very honest right man you know and, and mm. this is just an this is a continuing it's a journey you, you know you want to yeah and so live, you, but it's and in hindsight you're always looking back going oh i thought i was being so honest and maybe <laughs> i was just fucking lying to everybody and that might be your personality evolving um but i guess when i look at that and, and this has been said before. Um, I was listening to a, a, another podcast, and I forget what who said it, but they were talking about vulnerability. They were talking about honesty. And I've never stood up on stage and told my story and told the story of, you know, alcoholism and cheating and lying and, and you know, all the shit that I, you know, dropping out of high school and stuff and had somebody come up to me afterwards and go, Dude, you said way too much. <laughs> Shouldn't have done Nobody's that. <laughs> ever said that. Everybody comes up and goes, dude, thank you so much for saying that. Like, I'm dealing with that with my kid, or I'm just going through a fucking horrible divorce, or I just started going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Or Nobody ever says, that's way too much, dude. You shouldn't talk about that. It's like an open invitation, and I think that's what's so cool. I mean, that's one of the reasons why AB and I get along so well is because those, those are the conversations we're having on the trail. But it doesn't stop on the trail. We're walking up and we're like, wow, that's a really, you know, shit changes in our head. And then we talk about it on stage. And that's special. Yeah. And to be able to share that with people and consequently help them change their lives potentially, it's amazing. And it's in short supply, I think, in the world today. Yeah. 
it just comes down, and I think this comes down to, to even Adrian's decision, you know, on Summit Day. Our highest calling, at least for me, my highest calling, is simply to do the next right thing. That's it. Like, the next right thing. We have decisions all day that we can make, and all we have to do, whatever comes up in, in the next few nanoseconds or in five minutes. I'm just going to try and do the next right thing. So every decision that I'm given as an opportunity to become a person living more in line with my values and integrity, do the next right thing. That's what Adrian did. He said, okay, here's the decision. What do I do? Do I stay here and do the wrong thing for everybody based in, you know, my ego and my need to do this? Or do I do the next right thing, which is recognize what's happening and turn around and be good to everybody else. I don't, you know, he doesn't need... Imagine continuing and depriving everybody of this life, right? We're not having this conversation. This community doesn't have this person. Emily doesn't have this person. His dad doesn't have this... That's fucking ridiculous. Right. But it could be really hard to identify that and separate that out and sort of do it while you're up there. It's very idyllic. One of the true challenges. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, because we are driven in our own physical pursuits as well. Uh, but of course, do you get the whole point? Of, I mean, nothing up there is black and white, right? Which, you know, that's another we talk a lot about black and white and gray. Oh, yeah. and like there is, there's very little black and white up there. You wish there was every day, like choosing what day <laughs> to go on. You know, it's so like much stress. Figuring out what someone else is thinking or feeling or going through or why this isn't working or why this is working, and then when to turn around. I mean, that is. Uh, it, it, there is no black and white. Maybe I could have gone to the top and come down. I, I've convinced myself six months later that I couldn't, but who knows, right? Because yeah. you can't test that theory. Because right. if you do test that theory and it goes wrong... You're done testing. Again, we'd be in a different position today. And so they, being okay with that gray and that uncertainty is very much a part of my mountain experience. And it's very much a part of my life, all lives, right? right? And, there's, know, I, there's too many bodies up there. <laughs> Yeah, already. Yeah. Well, like I think it's cool that you you t- you took it fully in stride, right? I mean, you could, from the outsider's perspective looking in, they could view it as you know success and failure, and you call that out in your show. Yeah. But to actually absorb the quote unquote failure yeah. or lack of summiting, and to use that as an empowering tool is massive. So. Absolutely. To go and now to set you up to go back for success, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And I, th- I mean, I. Th- you know, the name of our little slideshow or not here, but sort of success and failure on Everest. Like, I think for me, it was so important. I immediately, we went back, like we we mentioned a few times, we came off the mountain and literally 72 hours from the mountain, we were in studios in New York City doing 16 hours of interviews. Um, And it was so intense and weird and jarring and hard and all these things. But also everyone wanted to tell me I didn't fail. And I see even Corey's getting ready to jump in here. (laughs) No, 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 no. no. (laughs) You know, for me, it was so important right from the beginning and all the way through to, to be, to definitely stand up and be okay with the fact that I did fail. And one of the major goals of my expedition was to stand on top and to come back down alive. And I didn't do that. And failing and being okay with it or not being okay with it, but living with it and figuring out what I'm going to learn from it and figuring out how I'm going to channel that to maybe it's going back to Everest, maybe it's something else. But I, 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 I had to accept that I failed, 
Now, were there other successes on the trip? As a team, Corey summited. We came down together. Alpenglow had an amazing season. Um, I'm not a body up there, and I get to have more time with all these people I love. Great successes. But I don't think they should hide or cover up also the fact that we fail all the time. And and those things are just as important. Right. But it's not, I wasn't going to say that you didn't fail. Thank you. You, you totally I'm failed. A failure, <laughs> Corey. What I was going to say, and it sort of extends into more of a, a philosophical question, but failure, you know, I, I agree. Like, you know, I dropped out of high school, I failed at school. Like, I was a terrible academic, right? And, and now I, I think I have a pretty great life. I failed at marriage, but I'm really yeah, happy. Me too. You know, like high five. <laughs> um, but, but I think that, you know, failure really is only failure if you fail to learn from it. Mm, exactly. And that, um, yes, you didn't go to the top. But what I was going to say, and I love this story. We haven't told it. I don't think I've ever told it in, a, in an interview. But we were walking out of Charlie. No, we were walking into the studio with Charlie Rose. Oh, yeah. And uh, David Petraeus, General Petraeus, was there, and he was the interview before us. Which was kind of cool, right? Which is great. <laughs> and so, so uh, David, so I've run into to General Petraeus. I've been at several events after, so I'm going to call him David just to feel cool for a second. <laughs> so David walks out, and um, and he and he looks at he looks at age, he looks he shakes our hands. He's like, "No, you're Corey, and uh, and you're Adrian." And he d- just went straight to Adrian and goes. What you did up there took a lot of discipline. And this is coming from one of the most successful generals, you know, in modern history. And he didn't say you didn't fail. Yeah. He said what you did took a lot of discipline, which implies that it does imply some level of success, but it also implies a level of intellectual capacity to understand a situation and make the best decision possible at that moment, which is far above and beyond anything that you gain from not having to go through that experience. Mm. So sure, you failed. I'm fine with saying that. But the value is not, the value is in that. And I guess that's always been really important for me because I don't think that platitudes help. Yeah, I don't think that platitudes (laughs) help. Like, and we do that all the time. We were having this yeah. conversation the other day. You know, somebody tells you, oh, I'm going through this, and they try to make it better. You know, they're like, well, you know, at least this, ha- you know, at least you're not dead. I mean, mm-hmm. we do that all the time. And, <laughs> and Brene Brown says she's so great. She's like, very, you know, very infrequently is an empathetic response begin with at least. You know, like, <laughs> right. that's not being with the person. Right. Just let the person be where they're at. And uh, and, and I, I love that Petraeus was just like, what you did took a lot of discipline. Right. There was no better way to say it. Because mm-hmm. it's all just perspective. Yeah. Yeah. How you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Um, and this pretty much is what we do for two and a half months on the mountain. That's why I'm so psyched to go back. Like these are the conversations yeah. we have all day long yeah. walking up. We down sometimes talk and... about women. Yeah. I'm <laughs> not going to lie. It's just like it has to get <laughs> not metaphysical. But we talk about them in eloquent. Oh, yeah. Philosophical Big words. Ways. Big words. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But do you guys, I mean, obviously, um, you know, you're, you're these metaphors for, for big mountain climbing and um, how they correlate to life are, I think, are, are wonderful. But do you, have you guys ever found, you know, um, you know, kind of that brothers in arms feeling where you spend so much um, high pressure, stressful time, you know, uh, just sheer time together on a mountain and then come home and have that kind of 
be lacking in your everyday life, you know? That's, that's again, that's tribe. That's tribalism. That's, that's Sebastian Younger's book, tribe, um, PTSD, uh, there, there, you know, there's some evidence that PTSD occurs not in the actual event, but it comes in the absence of, of community. And that brothers in arms concept is, I mean, I collapse when I come home. I'm closer to Adrian. This is going to sound weird, dude. Uh, you should right. put your pants back on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get too comfortable. I'm Fear closer. Much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm closer to Adrian than I than I ever was to to my ex-wife, you know, and because that's that's really sad to say on some level. It's also very cool, but it's very honest. I mean, it's like that shit is real, and if you don't take the time to be real with people, as soon as then it's going to fall apart. So coming home, hell yeah, dude! I I collapsed, you know. I quit drinking before going to Everest. And, and then I came back and I was like, ah, oh, I can kind of reward myself. And I you know, and all of a sudden, you know, months later, I was like, oh my God, this is, uh, this is due in large to the fact that I lost, I feel like it's this hard stop and you lose your best friend and they're just gone. Right? And it was a hard stop. Like uh, oh, yeah. sometimes that's just how it is, you know, like. Corey's a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. And we just dove back into our lives and literally didn't talk for weeks or months. And, you know, despite this incredible intensity we'd had on the mountain. Right. And so, yes, I think it's very hard to, yeah. to come back and to figure out how to maintain those bonds and relationships with your climbing partners and to reach that level of connection with people at home. I do think there are ways to do it. I think there are experiences that can be had at home, um, whether it's, you know, building a business together could have some of that intensity. Um, certainly having a meaningful, honest, open, you know, adventurous relationship, it is possible, but it takes work, right? Because of all the distractions, or at least for me, that's a big part of it. All these other things and pulls on my life was when, when Corey and I were together, it was like that, that was it. That was Two, two plus months, this is it. And uh, so I think there was that. And I also think, like, Corey, as you can probably tell, is in the, where Corey is at today, he's just a really open, honest human. And that's powerful for me. And there were no expectations. So we just talked about everything, right? All the time. And we're ourselves. Like, if I needed to tell Corey to shut the up because I needed some time yeah. for myself. I could do that. There's not many people in my life I can do that with. And so, you know, it just, it just worked and it's very hard to replicate that at home, I think. Right. And I think, you know, I read somewhere, Corey, some posts on Instagram or something, but this quote was super insightful. Um, something along the lines of it's been three weeks to the day since I took this picture. I miss my friends. I miss the place. I miss the textures, the smells, the sounds, you know, the gravity of the mountain arena, you know, yeah. like that, that's, that's some s serious shit. Um, and let alone to come home to massive fanfare, right? It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, your normal homecoming, right? Well, it's, I mean, I have a really, I, I, I hit on it at the beginning. Um, I, I have a big ego and my, you know, my goal is, I'm, tr I'm working on that, whatever that means. So I don't want to talk about that too much. But coming home, 
Um, it's easy to get lost in whether you fail or you succeed. It's easy to get lost in the stories we tell ourselves, right? And what I love in, in hearing that, what I'm hearing is, is the simplicity of the place. And I love thinking about uh, the, the gravity is in its simplicity. The gravity is in its brevity. The gravity is in its uh, lack of need to be anything more than it is. It's friendship, it's compassion, it's love, empathy, and, and, it's, and it's genuine struggle. Uh, and it's all of the great, you know, good times, the greatness that comes with that package. So you start with these building blocks and you end up that sound sort of like arduous and negative and you end up with this really beautiful product. And uh, I hear, I miss the simplicity of being with my friends and my loved ones. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, I also hear in that, I remember writing it. Um, if you read one step further, it's, I feel confused. I'm confused by this world. Mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah. I think, I mean, I just, I think about it so much, like, had I summited, what would have happened? Or if I summit this next spring, what will happen? Like, you know, I, I thought about it a lot at that point, and it's a really simple thing, but no matter how much we tell ourselves, like, standing on top doesn't really matter. Like, I saw Corey did something absolutely remarkable. He stood on top without oxygen. Other people have done it, um, of course, but it's something Corey dreamed of. He did it, and he did it in impeccable style, like just made it look easy all around. And then, like, that should, that, like, he should have been, it's easy to say, like, oh, he must be on top of the world. Like, he just nailed it. This is it. He Literally. just got what he <laughs> dreamt of, right? Yeah. Like, um, and it's, it's so easy to put a lot of value on that summit, um, and to think that everything must just be so rosy, but it, it, it just doesn't work that way. Right. right. It's just a summit. Right. Um, and then it's done and yeah. it's gone and it's fleeting and it and hurts the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> well, because it is such a, it's such a peak experience. Like literally it's a peak thing. And then it, and then it doesn't exist. And, and all of the gratification and again, the platitudes that all of that shit goes away really, really quickly. And, and then you're left with, holy shit, you know, it's all the same. Nothing changed. Nothing is mm -hmm. different. Uh, people think it's different. And like Adrian says, like people, you know, oh, it's got to be on top of the world, um, <laughs> which is so funny. Um, but in, in reality, that's, you know, that's playing the comparison game. And somebody said something to me recently, uh, and this happens all the time with our, our social media stuff. Um, you know, we're watching people's lives unfold, and uh, especially on, on things like Instagram, and they're giving us a curated view. And so in this very media-heavy, driven age, we're always comparing, how did they say it? We're always comparing our insides to everybody else's outsides. Yeah. So all we're seeing is the good shit. And we're comparing all of our baggage and all of our everything to, the, to their perfect little thing that they put up, you know? And, and that's, again, back to why telling the whole story is so important because it levels the playing field. But yeah, I mean, dude, was I psyched? For sure. It was a great, it was a big goal. I, I did it. But it actually led to a lot more shit than mm -hmm. I was 
you know, I, I kind of thought it was like rubber stamp, close the dark chapter, woohoo, Phoenix Rising, I did it. And that is not what happened. So, um, well, and, it, and it wasn't, you know, I think if, uh, if my facts are correct, you had tried the, on that West Ridge mm-hmm. expedition. That was an oxygenless attempt. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's got to be some type of validation to go that, that window, you know, of four years and then send it. But then also turn around and realize, you know, I think you used the metaphor of I ran from all my problems to the tippy top of the world and they still weren't solved. Yeah. Right. And the redemption of the mountain and the summit didn't solve them either. No. What what going back to Everest did, what it solved, if we can use that word, is it started to heal the wound between me and the mountains. Mm. Right. Because that and that was a real wound. Um you know, going to the mountains, having a very traumatic experience, and then feeling this divide grow between something and between, you know, me and something that sustains me and has sustained me my whole life was very painful. So going back to Everest and succeeding had some level of a healing effect on that wound. Um, But what I, you know, the idea that I was going to sort of like surmount the, the struggles of life that I've been feeling was actually almost exactly the opposite. Uh, there was a huge, um, (laughs) you know, you, you, you said it exactly right. I ran to the top of the world to escape my problems and, um, and they're all right there. And so the only place to go at that point is into it. I want to hear about, um, your photography Mm -hmm. and how, um, you know, I think in our world, everyone knows you as uh, a climber who's also a photographer. And, and I know that it's not a linear relationship and one, you know, one happened in relation to another and vice versa. But, um, you know, more I look at I look at your Instagram feed and I love it because it's it's not just climbing or skiing. Mm-hmm. It's real world life, you know, beauty, ugliness, strife, you know, whether civil or environmental and, and the writing that goes with it is I think very powerful and I'd encourage everyone to, to check it out. Um, although I think you're like the most followed Instagram handle of all time, right? But, right. Um, Those million followers, but I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but when I, so when I look at your images, they're strikingly beautiful, right? Um, you know, I see that, you know, which I spoke to earlier, like when I see images of you, it's like there's depth there and there's there's a lot going on. And I see that in your photography. Right. Um, do you when you're capturing these these images, are you are you seeing like a reflection of your personality, or your identity to some degree? Or is it just I mean, how do you approach that? Well, I mean. I think actually that this I'll answer that and then I and then I want to ask Adrian a question about that because I think that there's value in in how it's perceived. Um <clears throat> I think any time I take a photograph uh it's absolutely a reflection of what I'm feeling at the time. There's an there's it's impossible to separate ourselves from that. And great journalism um whether we want to admit it or not, cannot be entirely objective. It just doesn't work that way. Humans aren't built that way. We're not robots, so we can't extract ourselves from things. We're always in it. Um, photography 
has become exactly that tool for me to say, well, this is what I'm feeling in the world and this is how I'm perceiving it and this is the message that I want to get across, even if it is journalism. But there's still truth in, an, in sort of, there's still truth in an opinion. It doesn't mean it's fact, but there is still truth in an opinion. Does that, I hope that makes sense. Totally. Um, <clears throat> so it's absolutely a reflection of me and I hope that that continues. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I feel like I've stalled as a creative person. I feel like I'm struggling. I, I feel like I'm swimming upstream and I'm losing that battle. Uh, there are times where I want to give up photography. You know, there have been times even in the last year uh, since Everest where I've considered, you know, do I want to do this anymore? It makes me unhappy. I th- so, so <laughs> yes, I mean, all of that is there. It's a really hard question to answer. But I, I guess, w- let me think about it a little more. I want to ask Adrian because we, I went to Everest this year not as a photographer. And um, so Adrian's the, really the only person that I was shooting, right. right, the whole time. I want to get his take on that because I want to know, like, when I was in a bad mood, was I all up in your face when you were feeling like shit? Or like when I was in a good mood, was I like annoyingly trying to capture like glory moments? I don't know. Like it's a funny, it's a funny concept. I don't, I don't remember that specifically. Um, I, you know, I, I tried, I don't think I ever noticed your moods. No, that's, <laughs> now you're, now I know you're lying. clearly not true. Um, you know, I, I didn't notice that. I felt like you, I noticed you, did, you didn't constantly want to be capturing. Like it clearly wasn't why you were there. Um, you took some incredible images, in my opinion, from the mountain and, um, you know, made me look both really bad at times and really, <laughs> really pretty much better than I really look at times. But, um, but I could tell you, you were there for a different reason. You were there for the climbing and for what we were going to do together. And the shooting came after that, I felt like. Yeah. And, and I, I really, I, I liked that. I wanted you there as a climbing partner. You weren't meant to be there to document my climb or, or the Sherpa or the political problems of Tibet. Um, you know, there, there are other times for that. Yeah. Stripped down. Yeah. It was, again, we were really, really simple, this trip, despite the media following us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird. It, yeah. it is, because there was so much, but we were lucky to have a team, as always. Like, it was not just me and Corey. We talked about the show already. We had the Monica, our doctor, who's one of my closest friends, and co- has connected over many years with Corey as well, and they have a true understanding of each other, and... You know, then we had these guides who were playing, you know, sort of like defense for us and keeping certain parts of the mountain and the trip away from us so we could focus. They helped us in- incredibly uh, to be able to focus on what we were really there for. So while there was a lot of hard work with the production, I, I never felt like like when we needed to say no and we said no a lot, mm-hmm. people listened and people made sure we had our space. Well, and a lot of times, you know, we didn't have to say no. Everybody would say that we had a whole team that would say no for us. And that, um, you know, we talked about this uh, the other day. People think of climbing or skiing or, or you know, like rowing across the ocean or whatever it happens to be as, as, 
you know, these wonderful individual accomplishments. And I think we need to re-examine how we look at the word accomplishment. But I also think that we also we have to re-examine what a solo sport is. I mean, this is a climbing Everest is a team sport. It takes hundreds of people to get every single person to the top. And it would be an absolute fallacy to say that it's almost wrong to say I climbed Everest without without directly acknowledging it's not just Sherpa, it's 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 your cook staff, and it's not just people in Nepal, or it's not just your not just people on the mountain. It's your whole outfitting organization, and it's not just them. It's airlines. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds, and it's your friends and your family and. It's, there are hundreds of people that make all this shit work. And if you don't acknowledge that, even to your, especially to yourself, then you're missing sort of the point of it all, I guess. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's so easy for me to make tie-ins, and I do it a lot in, in speaking and things like that, from the mountain to home, right, and to business. Like, it's exactly, so much of it is the same. Like, as a business owner, Brendan, you're a business owner, you're a business owner, Corey, and your photography and what you create your own thing. And it's like, it does take intense personal drive. It is very much Absolutely. us. And yet at the same time, there is no way any of us would be even close to where we are in some of our positive accomplishments without these massive nets of people um, that's support and strive and try and question and push us. And it, it's just something that's so easy to see on the mountain, and it's right here at home. I'm a total show pony, so I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's true. You're you're some of your you're some of the parts, whether it's in a business analogy yeah. or a life analogy. But but I th- I think there is some kind of invisible hand, right, that guides you through your life, and that it is a it is a sequence of experiences or um, occurrences that turn you into the person that you are, that you can make that decision to turn around when, when things are going sideways. Right. Yeah. Um, I've always felt very grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously in your lines of work, whether you're shooting in a third world country or climbing big mountains, suffering is a huge part of all of our lives, right? In the mountains, we take an easy life and try to make it harder on ourselves. Right. And how, How's that, how's that play into your everyday existence? How do you perceive that? Did you say we take our easier lives and try to make them harder? Yes. Yeah. We good. are white first world <laughs> motherfuckers. <laughs> well, that's the, I mean, I think so much about suffering. You know, I said earlier that I think, I, I knew going in that Corey was really good at suffering. And, uh, and you know, when I think about my own sort of trajectory in climbing specifically. Like I'm a pretty average athlete in, in many ways. Like I, I struggled through sports all my life, like just wanted to be good so badly and poured my heart and soul into basketball and then tennis and then crew and like, and then climbing. And it was pretty clear early on in my climbing career, I was never going to be a professional rock climber. Like my girlfriend, Emily is like that was, but I tried really, really hard but through all of that, like, I do think I found something that I have an innate, it's not a love of suffering. Like, I don't, I don't like it. I don't love it when I'm doing it. But I can move through it and 
and I do create it for myself. And, um, and every time I, I create it, work through it, I, I, I like it. I like something that I learn from it or something that I get out of it. And so, you know, in the mountains, I think that has been, if I have any skill, it, it is that ability to suffer. Um, or I always joke that I'm just a good sleeper. Like I can sleep anywhere, anytime, no matter how much stress is built up on me. And, uh, you know, Corey's laughing because he does not share that, that skill. <laughs> I'm pretty good, but I, not like AB, not, not at all like AB. You can sleep anywhere. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think there's a place for suffering in our lives and, so much of our learning and meaning comes from those harder experiences. And we all, we all have them, right? Heart, you know, really difficult things happen all, in all of our lives, I'm sure. Um, and yet we do also know everyone sitting at this table, we've had a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunity that takes a lot of our suffering away a lot of the times. Certainly that's been true for me. And uh, I, I find that I need those experiences to, to, for the rest of life, for the rest of the ease of life, to feel like the right balance. And that's just me. I, I mean, I think we can phrase the, the conversation a little bit differently. You know, we, we are privileged, and I like that you pointed that out. Uh, climbing mountains specifically is, by and large, a, you know, a privileged white person sport. Um, and being born a white American male comes with a tremendous amount of, uh, of innate privilege and it's privilege that I don't deserve and I didn't earn. Uh, it's not privilege that I'm ashamed of, but it's privilege that I need to be aware of. But I do think I like, I, I, you know, I get asked a lot by people who love me a lot, like my dad, um, like why I keep going back, why I keep taking this risk, why Everest, why this, why this, and like, so, you know, like I said, I've been 10 years, right? Like, and mostly with other people, not so much focused on my own, my own climbing. And all of it has been about, because it does create struggle. Maybe it's not even suffering. It's like struggle. I, I just love being a part of other people's struggle on the mountain. This human struggle, it seems so real and so simple and it's physical, it's mental, it's emotional. And what I've seen like specific to Everest, but like every different person at every different level on the trip experiences deep personal struggle. And whether whether that's Sherpa with all their strengths and all their advantages and their physical capabilities, but there's still a fight there, there's still a difficulty there, all the way through to clients that might carry a lot less weight or, you know, set up of many fewer tents on a trip, but they struggle so deeply and I believe so strongly in those experiences so being a part of other people's experience up there in that same struggle I, I just love it brings me back over and over and over and over right. yeah. <laughs> what's so instructional I think and I mean I think obviously it's a, a Buddhist tenet for a reason but um, I think you can look at suffering as a, as a mechanism to cultivate happiness mm. right like people fucking laugh at our, our my internet password here my wife's like you're fucking what's wrong with you yeah you know so, no that it's not a negative 
Yeah. You know, it's a positive. Yeah. It's just all perspective and how you, how you want to view it and how, what it means to you. But, um, well, that's an interesting point too, is, is turning negatives into positives. Because when we think of the word struggle and we think of the word suffering, um, Victor Frankl has a, it's the book Man's Search for Meeting. Everybody should read it because it really teaches us about compassion. Struggle is relative. Um, or excuse me, it's, that is consistent. What's relative is, is the situation that we're in that, that sort of prompts it. So when we're suffering or we're struggling, uh, as Adrian said, it can be a client who, who has all the money in the world and is paid to get here, um, or it can be one of the Sherpa who's getting paid far less, um, or it can be the girl in Beverly Hills who didn't get her, her uh, BMW for her Sweet 16, right? Those struggles and what happens in the brain, they're identical. Mm-hmm. Those responses are identical. There's no difference. So what that gives us is a window into really, I mean, sort of compassion, you know, but what, when, when I understand that your struggle is the same as my struggle, regardless of the circumstance, it allows me to extend myself to you more completely. And that is really, really special. And that I think is where uh, climbing, like Adrian was talking about earlier, you know, wanting to touch that line, knowing where he breaks down. Well, that gives him the capacity to understand where other people break down. Right. And he, that might have happened for him on Everest, and it might happen to somebody else in the inner city in Chicago. Right. You know, like we don't know. Right. Um, but what we do know is it's all the same. Yeah. And we should respect each other on that base level that this is all the same experience. So let's let's honor that. Did we just went totally off script. I don't know That's where great. the hell we went. That was, I went to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no. I took a piss. But, yeah. And I think we got, we got good time. So, um, I, I think, you know, we got a lot of good material, but, um, yeah, I mean, fuck, I could go all night, but what would you do if you couldn't climb or shoot photos? You go first. I don't shoot photos. <laughs> what would you do? What would I do if I couldn't climb? You know, I truly, I truly believe I'd, I'd be okay. Like, I, I have a n- number of passions in life. My business, like, Alp, growing Alpenglow is something I am so excited about. And I feel so similar when I have a great day in the office as I do when I'm on these big mountains. And I didn't feel that way six years ago. Um, six years ago, I loved my business and I was fascinated by it, but I was... I didn't have those like highs where I'm just like, oh, this, this can work. Like I can do something where I can touch people and it's feeding me and I do feel that now. So uh, I, I believe that that could feed me even if I couldn't climb again. Well, I do think you're a very empathetic person in general, right? And whether or not you got into guiding with that, as a conscious decision, you know, driving your, driving your direction. I don't know, but yeah. I would guess that either it was a conscious or subconscious decision, unconscious. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's your, like, that is a life's canvas. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And people are always going to remember, remember you for rad climbing feats. Right. But I think as we get older, we probably get more empathetic towards other people humans right just in general maybe um so to see you doing that with your clients and your team and from that's 
from the outside looking in, I can see a tremendous amount of fulfillment there. Absolutely. <laughs> it's good shit. It's, it, I feel very, very lucky. Yeah. And, and then I think, you know, I think ultimately it's about these, for, for me, it is about these relationships and friendships and teammates that we have. And there are other ways to have teammates beyond the mountains and to have powerful teammates to tackle difficult, dangerous things. Like, um, I've, you know, just having a successful relationship, possibly marriage, like that's like the biggest, scariest thing I can imagine, right? Like I've had one blow up before that I blew up. I created that. And to imagine doing that again is really intimidating, but you guys all know I have this incredible woman that I want to try that with. And so, you know, there, there is, I feel like there are in all of our lives so many ways to have these deep personal interactions that like, for instance, Corey and I found on the mountain, we can do that at home. And, and so I see so much opportunity to just focus energy there as well. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, should I go back to the question? What would I be do? like? No, I'd be a climber. <laughs> yeah. No, I'd be a photographer. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, if I couldn't climb or, or shoot or, or write for that matter. Um, well, I mean, I think writing is going to, first of all, at some point I'm not going to be a photographer and I'm not going to be a climber. And in fact, you know, my, um, my first photography instructor, all he, I got on, he, he gave me a ride to the airport. I was living in Salzburg, Austria. His name's Andrew Phelps. He's, he's a fine art photographer. He's amazing. And he dropped me off at the bus station as I was leaving Europe. And he's like, remember Corey, you might get, you might have some opportunity in this. This might blow up for you and this might be great, but you are never, don't, don't confuse what you do with who you are because they are two completely different things. And I know I, I get a lot of pushback on this idea, but essentially I'm not a photographer and I'm not a climber. I'm Corey. I've done some cool shit. I'm not going to deny that. I might have some talents with certain things. And I have a whole bunch of shortcomings, and we've talked about them. But uh, at some point, I'm not going to do those things. And I'm going to find other ways to fill that need. And that could happen tomorrow. I could get in a car accident, or it could happen when I'm 80, um, <clears throat> or anywhere in between. And the things that fulfill me, I'm learning now, are being with the people that I love, hanging out with people like Adrian and Emily, being in this living room, talking about big ideas. And any way that I can communicate those experiences effectively and continue to grow and sort of cultivate uh, a collective human experience that allows um, betterment, uh, both personally and at large, that's what I'm going to do. So if that means making furniture that people love looking at and having in their living room, I'm going to do that. If it means writing books... I'm going to do that. If it means working at a grocery store and offering a fucking smile and not being an unhappy person, I'm going to do that. I'm not there yet. I'm pretty angsty still. Um, but I'm working on it. Right on. Well, I think we did it. Awesome. I think sitting down with you guys, and I, I think I have said this at some of the shows, that the older I get, it makes me realize that People, uh, or maybe I shouldn't ap apply that to people in general, but I derive happiness from experiences and relationships, right? So to sit down with you guys at the table and kick it is a huge validation for me. So thanks for taking the time. 
Yeah, I think Thanks. we went Thank along. you, B. Yeah. Thanks, dude. <laughs> Thanks for having us, and this is rad. Well, that's the first one, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. This episode was produced by myself and Kristen Hanna. It was recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studios on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Our sound ninja is Luke Funicella. Luke is also responsible for the tunes you hear on this podcast. Check him out on SoundCloud and give him a high five for us. Make sure you look out for our second episode with local Tahoe hero and rock climbing icon Dave Nettle on Friday, December 8th, wherever you enjoy your audio stories. Subscribe now and tell a friend. You know, uh, for the audience, like, friend and I have known each other since I moved to Tahoe, like, nine years ago, nine, ten years ago, and, like, been super close friends. And I know Brendan would not disturb a show for anything. And I see Brendan just striding to the front of the room. And at first, I was like... To be fair, it was more of a saunter. It was Like, with the news that he was bringing, (laughs) it was actually super mellow. (laughs) Yeah, but to me, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, did Corey, like, drop the F-bomb one too many times and we're going to get told to rein it in? That was my first thought. (laughs) No, Irish Catholic, I'd never rein the F-bomb in.